first 300 years of the church, believers faced severe persecution. See, by 64 AD, the Roman emperor Nero had declared Christianity to be religio illicita, uh, that's an illegal religion, which is kind of odd. The Roman Empire was known for its religious tolerance. So what was the problem with Christianity? Well, Christians were exclusive. That is, for them, the God of the Bible was the, the only God. So they refused to worship the pantheon of Roman gods to include the supposedly divine Roman emperor. It is said then that ten general persecutions followed, led by those Roman emperors. While some were worse than others, they were all terrible. I could tell you some amazing stories of perseverance under persecution, stories of those who followed, faithfully followed Christ at great personal cost, like Ignatius, Origen, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, who gained the name that way, Irenaeus, Perpetua, Felicitas, many others. Their stories are sometimes gruesome, but also demonstrate great faithfulness in the face of certain death. Well, one of those Roman emperors, one of the ten, was Decius, who came to power in 249 A.D. History paints him as a rather cruel ruler who wanted to restore Rome to her former glory. For, for Decius, the root issue for Rome's decline was people had abandoned the worship of Roman gods. Therefore, in order for the glory of Rome to be restored, it would be necessary to restore their ancient religion. So he embarked on on a religious campaign. As he saw it, the survival of Rome was at stake. So those who refused to worship the Roman gods were then guilty of high treason. His was, in fact, the first systematic empire-wide persecution. But there's a sense in which his was a bit different than the ones that came before. He sought not to make martyrs of Christians, but rather apostates. What do I mean? He didn't want to kill them. He just wanted them to recant. If they refused, if they refused to worship the, the, the Roman gods, death would come. He issued a decree that everyone offers sacrifices to the gods, burn incense before a statue of, well, himself. Those who complied were given a certificate called a labellus. If you, did, if you did not have the certificate, you were considered an outlaw. Now, there were four different responses by Christians to this particular edict. Some simply ran to obey. They became known as the apostates. Some refused at first, but then recanted when faced with certain torture or death. Some, this is kind of interesting, purchased fraudulent certificates. Think about that. They didn't worship a false god, but they said they did. <laughs> and then finally, some stood, stood firm and refused to obey. They were, became known as the confessors. Decius only ruled, thankfully, for a couple of years. His decrees were then set aside and persecution somewhat abated. But, but now, now, because of the great number of apostates, the church was faced with a question of what to do with those who lapsed. What to do, what do you do with those who, in one way or another, weakened, recanted their Christian faith during the persecution? Uh, given the great prestige and honor of these confessors, many thought, let's let them decide. And so they did. They called a synod. That's a church meeting and decided the following. First, 
Those who had purchased or obtained certificates without actually sacrificing were immediately reinstated to the church. It's kind of interesting. You can lie. You just can't be involved in idolatry. Second, those who had sacrificed and later repented would only be readmitted on their deathbeds. That's nice. Unless... Unless a new persecution gave them opportunity to prove the sincerity of their faith. You see, they lived in persecution. When the next one comes, if you're faithful, we'll let you back in. Third, those who sacrificed but showed no repentance would never be readmitted to the church. Of course. The challenge? The text before us in our continuing study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. You see, there are a few, if any, more challenging and troubling passages in the New Testament than this one. Entire denominations have arisen based on the interpretation of this text. In fact, I told someone this week I was going to have playing, I'm leaving on a jet plane as I ascended the platform today. I really am. I, I leave Tuesday with OCC for Uganda. The timing could not be more perfect. Depending on the emails I receive while I'm there, we'll determine whether or not I come back. <laughs> One thing most agree on is this. This passage contains the most severe warning out of all of the warnings in the book of Hebrews, perhaps the entire New Testament. It is sobering. I actually spent some time on some mega church websites this week to see who had covered this particular text. I, I discovered some interesting things. First of all, most megachurches do not study books. They do topics. And you cannot even search their sermons by Scripture, only by topic. And I could not find any that preached a, a topic or a series like how to become an apostate. Needless to say, of those in the topical variety, I found none, zero, that covered this text. And I could give you names that might surprise you. Even among those who do expositional studies, that is verse by verse as we do, I was stunned, stunned to find this passage skipped. Oh, of course, John Piper covered it. But John MacArthur... I like John MacArthur out in California. Well, this, this text is in their sermon archive, preached by their college pastor. Where's Michael when you need him? <laughs> MacArthur didn't cover it. As you know by now, we make our way through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings. We don't skip texts. We're, we are currently in what are called the general epistles, that is Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then, and then Jude. Personally, I could hardly wait to get to Hebrews. It's a great book. I enjoy reading it. Well, most of it. You see, I, I knew that we would have to deal with these so-called warning passages to include those found in chapters 6 and 10. <laughs> have you ever, as you're reading the Bible, do you ever get to one of those passages and think, I don't... I don't think I know what this is saying, and even if I do, I don't think I like what this is saying. There are none more controversial, challenging, and troubling than these two passages in Hebrews 6 and, and 10. 
But I was excited because going verse by verse, it would allow us to look at the passages within their all-important context. For example, we know that the first readers of this letter were Jewish believers facing severe persecution, actually possibly under Nero. As a result, some were questioning their, their new Christian faith, actually considering quitting and returning to Judaism. At the, at the very least, they had neglected their great salvation, and as a result, had not grown to maturity. They were still infants in, in the faith, and they were in danger. Now, 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 we're not sure who the writer of this letter was, nor how we found out about this particular situation, but he writes this, listen to me, this pastoral letter to both encourage and warn them. You see, pastors should both encourage and warn their people. I would suggest the letter, this letter, is as applicable today as it has ever been. Oh, we are not currently facing the opposition that the original readers faced, but opposition is indeed rising. Now, to be sure, we can stick our collective heads in the sand, ignore the clear teaching of Scripture, and suggest that God wants His children to be prosperous, wealthy, and healthy, but this was not the experience of New Testament believers, nor of the first readers of Hebrews, nor of the church through the centuries, nor of believers around the world today. But we can continue to live in our evangelical bubble until it bursts, and bursting it is. So, pastorally speaking. What will we do when rising opposition knocks on our doors? I could ask it this way. How important is Jesus and his gospel to us anyway? It's pretty important. But is he worth loss of respectability and acceptability? Is he, loss of, is he worth loss of livelihood, of, of property and possessions? Is he worth the loss of your life? Is he worth being countercultural, even counter church culture, if the church has largely abandoned truth as they have across our country and our community? Is it worth it? The book is as applicable today as it's ever been. He warns us, he encourages us, and even when he warns us, he follows with encouragement. Let's go ahead and read the text, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, say this. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible, actually, Impossible is the first, this is a long sentence in verses 4 to 6, and it, the first word, adumatos, is the first word in the Greek text. Think Yoda, impossible it is. Impossible it is to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed. And its final end, being burned. So why is this text so difficult? Well, ultimately, it depends on your theological position, and you need to think with me this morning. Boiled down to the most basic argument, there are those who say that you can lose your salvation and those who say that you cannot. And frankly, both positions have their biblical challenges. And both will also say you must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, so follow. For those who say you can lose your salvation, this passage, they say, is proof positive and, and, and that you can lose it. And those passages which seem to say you cannot lose your salvation must be interpreted in light of this text. <laughs> Conversely, those who suggest you cannot lose your salvation say you must interpret this passage in light of the other very clear assurance passages. Are you with me or as confused as you were before? Here's the question, what to do with the apostates? You see, I want to be very frank, very sensitive, and gentle with you today. Regardless of your position, this passage has some rather strong, indeed eternal things to say about those who were at least professing believers, but then subsequently chose to deny Christ and His gospel. Strong things to say. I'm not talking about those who have fallen for a period of time into a life of sin. I'm talking about those who have willfully chosen to walk away. Let me say it clearly. We have all likely had family members and close friends who formally said that they were Christians, made a profession of faith, were with us for a while. And now not only have they walked away, they deny the Christian faith. They deny Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, and they deny His gospel. What do we do with them? It is important as we look at this text to ask and answer several questions, answers by the way with which committed Believers do not agree. I suppose when I finish today, you may not agree with me. Can I say that's okay? There are lots of godly people, godly, faithful people who would teach this a bit differently. I will do my best to teach the text, and we will together seek the Holy Spirit as to its proper interpretation. So then, what are those questions. Who is the, here they are, who is the author describing? That is, are these, are these true believers, <laughs> almost believers, or unbelievers? Uh, almost believers, you understand, are, are not believers. Well, what is this falling away? Is it falling into sin? 
and I've already tipped my hand on this, or is it apostasy denying the Christian faith? And what is this impossible to renew them to repentance? <laughs> Does that mean it's not likely to renew them? That it's really, really difficult. It's really hard to renew them to, to repentance, or is it impossible? What does crucifying the Son of God to themselves and putting Him to an open shame mean? Seems rather significant. What is the purpose of the illustration that He gives in verses 7 and 8? And finally, perhaps most ominously, is the author suggesting both here and in chapter 10 that true believers can lose their salvation? That ought to cause you to tremble. If so, how? What are the conditions upon which they lose it? And if they lose their salvation, can they be saved again? You see, this has significant bearing on those we have known and loved who once professed to know the gospel, professed to believe the gospel, but now deny Christ. Is there any hope for them? What do we do with apostates? Most of my commentaries sought to answer these questions, all, by the way, conservative and evangelical. They did not, however, all agree. Entire books and articles have been written on the warning passages in Hebrews, focusing on this one found in Hebrews chapter 6. I suppose more has been written about this passage in Hebrews 6 than any other passage in the book of Hebrews. So let's try to answer the questions, starting with, who is the author describing? For in the case of those who have once, and then he goes on to list five participial phrases... And the word once actually applies to all five of them. Those who have once been enlightened. Those who have once tasted of the heavenly gift. Those who have once been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's a bit challenging. Those who have once tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And those who have once then fallen away. So, who are these people? B bottom line, are they Christians or not? A couple of quick things to notice. First, many rightly point out that the author uses the first and second person pronouns in, in the first part of the, of the warning. That is, he uses us and, and you. And, and then he returns to the first and second person, in, 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 in uh, us and you, in verse 9. We are convinced of better things of you. But here he uses, for the first time in the book, the third person pronoun, those and them. Is, is that significant? Perhaps. Another thing to note. How, how you identify these people determines whether or not you believe a person can lose their salvation or not. Are these Christians or are they almost Christians? That is, those who have been clearly exposed to the gospel, maybe even made a verbal confession of, uh, of the gospel, but never really embraced the gospel. Lives never really changed. Who are they? There are basically three ways, if I boil it down, to interpret this text. Let me list and define them. 
Although when I come to the end, I will list a fourth way that I will commend to you. First is called the hypothetical interpretation. This view is quite common. It says that these are true Christians, but since true Christians cannot lose their salvation, this is a a warning about something that cannot possibly happen. Meaning, while true Christians, they cannot possibly apostatize, so this is purely hypothetical. The obvious problem with this view is this. If they cannot fall away, why warn them against falling away? Seems to me to be nonsensical. Second, view is the actual interpretation. This view says that those who fall away are actual bona fide Christians. Notice one and two both say these are actual Christians. They suggest while it is God's grace that saves us, it is my will that chooses salvation. And just as I chose to put myself into Christ, I can also subsequently choose to take myself out of Christ. If there is any passage in the Scripture that says true believers can lose their salvation, this is it. I will, however, have something to say about that at the end of our time. The third view is the apparent interpretation. This is most common within my personal camp. This view says that these are are not truly Christians. They are apparent believers, almost Christians, if you will, those who have made a profession of faith, but their profession is spurious, so they don't persevere. They they don't actually lose their salvation because they never actually had it. This view suggests that the author is continuing with his all-important theme, true believers persevere, so persevere. Well, let's look at the description of those who once did these five things. First, they were once enlightened. That's an interesting word. It simply means to gain light, to gain knowledge, to gain understanding. And notice it's in the passive. This is something that was done to them. They were enlightened to some kind of truth. Now, it is true that understanding truth and committing to truth are two different things. So I suppose, as is suggested, that it's possible that these are people who gained an understanding of gospel truth. And by the way, all of these, most agree, refer to gospel truth. Um, uh, gained some understanding of gospel truth, but never truly committed to it. They, they, they were enlightened, they understood it, but they never committed to it. But we should note the one other time this author uses this word is in chapter 10, verse 32, which reads, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you, second person plural, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. It seems clear he was talking about his readers, true believers, who after they received truth, suffered for it. In other words, in the face of persecution, they didn't quit, they didn't apostatize. But they were true believers, those who had been enlightened, you see. Second, they had once tasted of the heavenly gift. Most agree, regardless of your theological position, the heavenly gift is the gift of salvation. They had tasted of it. They had tasted of salvation. Some want to suggest that there is a difference between tasting something and fully consuming it. These people, because they had been around the church, if you will, been around the gospel community, had tasted the gospel, but they had not ingested it for themselves. They sampled it. They did not consume it. The problem with that is the way the author uses the word taste elsewhere. 
Obviously, he uses it in the next verse to speak of those who tasted of the good Word of God, but he also used it in chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Jesus who took on flesh so that he might taste, same word, so that he might taste death for everyone. Most agree Jesus did not just sample death. He experienced it completely, you see. Third, these people had once been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. This is the hump I couldn't get over. Tough one. First, the author uses the same word back in chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers, same word. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. So there we saw our perseverance was proof that we have become partakers of Christ. In fact, I switched around and said, if you don't persevere to the end, that proves that you are not a partaker of Christ. But here he's, he speaks of partaking of the Holy Spirit in the same way. Same word to describe people having once partaken of the Spirit. That is strong. Further, Peter and Paul argue in a number of places that the presence of the Holy Spirit within is proof of genuine conversion. You have the Holy Spirit, you're saved, right? Can you, can you have the Holy Spirit and not be saved? Acts chapter 15, for example, Jerusalem Council, as they were discussing whether the Gentiles uh, needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Peter stands up and says, God, who knows the heart, testified to them, that is the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. In other words, they're believers just like us. We saw evidence of their faith through the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit that they evidenced, partakers that they were. Paul uses the presence and power of the Holy Spirit over and over as proof of genuine conversion. For example, in Galatians chapter 3. Again, you want to know who, who are true believers? Those that have the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse Galatians 3. There he's reminding the Galatians of their conversion without the law and asks, this is the only thing I want to know um, to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by, uh, or by hearing with faith? You're, you're Christians because of your faith and receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, I think it is, says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. That's interesting. If you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot deny Christ and say He is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. My point is this, I do not know how you could possibly say more clearly that these people were Christians than by saying they were once made partakers of the Holy Spirit. How can you possibly partake of the Holy Spirit and not be a Christian? I know, some of you don't like where I'm going. Hold on till the end. For if they had once tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. We've already talked about tasted. The word could mean simply to 
to sample, taste, but the author seems to use it to speak of a full experience to consume it. They had once tasted, consumed the good word of God, given the context. Most agree, regardless of your position, this refers to the good word of the gospel. Further, with the coming of Christ and his gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the age to come, the messianic age, had broken into this age. The Holy Spirit with his signs and wonders, with spiritual gift, broken into this age. So, the people that experienced the good news of the gospel and that experienced the power of the age to come through the Holy Spirit with whom they had partaken. I, I suppose we could say, as professors, part of the visible church, the, the people had experienced the blessings of the gospel and the new covenant that Jesus brought. They'd experienced by their proximity to the believing community, believing covenant community, the blessings of the gospel. But, 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 the, but the context seems to say much more than that. They had personally tasted the good word of God personally experienced the power of the age to come. They had been partakers of the Holy Spirit. What do we do with these people? This leads us to the final thing, these people. I am suggesting by now believers could apparently do. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, by, uh, by the gospel, tasted the heavenly gift of salvation, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God through the gospel, powers of the age to come through the Holy Spirit, and then have fallen away. Stop right there. What is it to fall away? Given the context, again, most agree, this is not talking about falling into sin, but falling away from the truth that they had known and experienced, the things that the author has just enumerated from us. If they fall away from that, if they become apostates, do you see why this text had such a bearing on apostates in that early church synod? And do you see why it is the topic of so much controversy today? And do you see why it might grieve your heart? Verses 7 and 8 simply illustrate this truth with an agricultural metaphor, which quite common in the Scripture, agriculture was well known, lent itself well to good illustrations. Verse 7 indicates what true believers do. They are the ground, it's interesting, the ground that drinks the rain of God's good grace, and as a result, they bring forth fruit, proving the reality of faith and receive a blessing from God. They don't get the blessing because of the fruit. They receive the blessing because the fruit proves that they are genuine believers. Verse 8 conversely says, if the ground does not produce fruit, but rather yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and its end is only to be burned. You cannot read these verses without thinking of Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. The, the sower spread the seed of the good word of God, the gospel, on four types of soil. The seed that fell on the path, that is hard ground, no penetration, no life. It, they just heard it because the birds came, that is Satan came and snatched it away. Get that one, no problem. 
Seed that fell among the rocky ground immediately sprout because of, we suppose, because of the heat. But since there was no good soil, it quickly withered, fell away. The rocks, by the way, represented persecution. That's interesting. Hebrews. Seed that fell among the thorns, those thorns representing the worries of this world and the deceitful of wealth, read American Christianity, came up and choked out the good news of the gospel. But the seed that fell on good soil produced fruit, proving the genuineness of faith. Most, there's some disagreement, but most agree that it's only the fourth soil that are true believers. Rest burned up. So, what do we do with this text today? What what exactly are you saying? Can we remember the purpose of the book? The, The author is writing a pastoral letter to encourage and warn those facing opposition because of their faith. He encourages them by reminding them that Jesus is better, as we just sang. He's better. He warns them by telling them that there is nowhere else, no one else to whom they can turn to find forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus is it. Warns them. But the question of the morning, is he saying that you can lose your salvation? I believe this to be a genuine warning. I do not think it hypothetical. I believe those described are either believers or those who had made a profession of faith. Take your pick. Like the rocky soil or thorny soil. I believe you have the following three possibilities of interpretation. Kind of cover the two of them. I'm going to cover them again and introduce another. It is possible to see these as true believers who apostatized who, after making a genuine profession of faith, subsequently denied that faith and lost their salvation. If there is any text that teaches the possibility of losing your salvation, this is it. But even as I say that, please notice two things. First, they did not lose it because of some sin. They lost it because they denied Christ and His gospel. And notice, second, if they do so, it is impossible for them to be saved again. What does impossible mean? Well, what's impossible mean? Well, he uses it in, in, this, in this chapter, verse 18, to say it's impossible for God to lie. It doesn't mean that it's really hard for God to lie. It's impossible. He uses it in chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sin. He's using it in chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. What he means is that it is impossible. Let me address this particular one. I, 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 do not, I do not think this is a proper interpretation of the text based on other clear teaching of Scripture. Let me just go ahead and say it. I do not believe that a believer can lose his salvation. 
Because what this would be saying is that Jesus, who knew you from before the foundation of the world and chose you to be saved, and, 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 and of you, Jesus said, I, would, I will lose none that the Father has given me, none. This would be saying that Jesus was actually mistaken, that he lost some of you. Or that when God chose you, he didn't have the ability to keep you. But Philippians chapter 1 says, He who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. I do not believe that believers can lose their salvation. Second, it is possible to see these as almost Christians. They had been exposed to the gospel, to gospel truth and even gospel life. They'd experienced covenant community and even made a profession of faith. But they subsequently denied the faith. Two things to notice here. First, they did not lose their salvation. Again, they never had it. And second, having been exposed to the gospel and then even making a profession about it and walking away, it is now impossible to remove them, uh, to renew them to repentance. Why? Because they, because they put God, uh, they crucify Christ again and put him to an open shame. They crucify him again. What, what, what does that mean? It means that they are as guilty as the ones who nailed him to the cross, only more so. You see, the ones who were hanging on the cross, of them Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These people did know. Impossible to renew them to repentance. Third is a possibility, a new possibility that I have not mentioned yet that I personally hold. Several thoughts. First, I do believe that these are true believers. Second, true believers cannot lose their salvation. Third, this is a genuine warning against apostasy. And you're going... That, that doesn't make sense. Fourth, the warning against apostasy is always effective. What, what do I mean? These were true believers facing persecution and considering quitting. The author writes to encourage and warn them. And just as God's call to salvation is always effective for His chosen, so also... The encouragement and warning is always effective for his chosen. The struggle is real, but God will give you what you need to persevere. He called you. He will keep you. This is what verses 9 and following say. He will keep you. The warning is real, and the warning is effective. Are you listening in closing, we should not miss that verse 4 begins with the word for. That's a conjunction tying to what he has just said. And we remember this warning began back in chapter 5, verse 11. He takes his readers to task for remaining immature in their faith, for not growing toward maturity, for drinking milk, not moving on to the deeper things of the Christian faith. I would suggest that what we've talked about today is the deeper things of the Christian faith. But again, he has just encouraged them to grow up. I pastorally encourage you to grow up, spiritually speaking, for in the case of those who, verses 8 to 10, 
Two weeks ago, I began this warning. I said several times, there is no neutrality. There's no neutral in the Christian faith. You are either growing toward maturity or in danger of sliding toward apostasy. Regardless of how you interpret this text, whether it is possible for a true believer to apostatize, apostatize, the warning is clear. Do not put your Christian faith in neutral. This is not a game. This is real. This is eternal. To put your Christian faith in neutral is to put yourself in imminent spiritual danger. And so I say pastorally to you, Pursue growth, pursue maturity. Now, not in my notes, but let me address one other thought because I I know that there are people here, to include me, who have had people that we love, friends or loved ones, who, who, who early on, they were with us, right? Who made a profession of faith and they walked away. And now they deny the the faith. You've got a son or a daughter, a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. They were were with us. They they grew up in the church. You, You poured the gospel into them. You even saw them saved, presumably, and baptized. And now they have walked away. True believer, not true believer, I, I think not. But, but, but the challenge is, what is this that is impossible to renew them to repentance mean? Is there any hope for them? I don't want to weaken the text, but I would remind you of Peter. Peter, who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, confronted three times about Jesus, and three times he said, I don't know the man. Three times he denied To be clear, he did not deny the deity of Christ that he had declared earlier. He did not deny that he was the Christ. He did not deny his miracles. He did not die his death, burial, and resurrection that had yet to take place. But he denied knowing him. And God graciously restored him. I I, I say that to say only God knows hearts. Yes, people we know have walked away. God knows their hearts. So what do we do? We pray. What else can we do? Not weakening the text. If they have truly denied Christ, if they have truly walked away and apostatized, it's not possible for them to be saved again. There are no second beginnings. But only God knows the heart. Stand for prayer. And so, Father, right now we want to bow as a church family, and I, I want to pray for, I want to pray for a couple of groups of people. I want to pray for those who have walked away, who have apostatized. I, I, you know their hearts; I don't. And, and so we pray for them. What else can we do? We we pray for them, and we ask that their apostasy has not been final and decisive and complete. If it has, we trust you. We believe in you. And we pray that you would do your work. But for people who are here, the second group of people, I want to pray for people who are here who treat this as a game.
who, who haven't grown a lick in the last year or five years, ten years, just kind of do the Christian thing on Sunday morning. They are in danger. The author says they are in danger. And my prayer is that right now you would capture hearts and that you would keep them from apostatizing and that you would help them to get serious about their faith. I am convinced of greater things for you. In Christ's name, amen.